y'all. Welcome back to A Natural State of Murder. I am your host, Jess, and as always, I am very excited to be here with you today. Today, we are going to be in Florida, and we are going to have our first two-part episode, and we are going to be discussing the case of Eileen Warnos. Eileen Carol Pittman was born on February 29, 1956, in Rochester, Michigan. Her parents were Diane Warnos and Leo Dale Pittman. Eileen also had a brother named Keith that was a year older than her. Diane and Leo, they had gotten married when Diane was only 14 years old and he was 16 years old. Less than a year after they were married, they had their son Keith. And the couple, though, they were married less than two years. Two months before Eileen was born, Diane filed for divorce. Eileen never really knew her father. Leo was in prison when she was born, and he had been diagnosed with schizophrenia, but he was in prison for sexually abusing children. He would later hang himself in prison, committing suicide on January 30, 1969. Just before Eileen turned four, in January of 1960, Diane abandoned both of her children, Eileen and Keith, and she left them with her parents, Lori and Britta Warnos. Now, most would think that this would be a better setup, like this would be a better situation for Eileen and Keith both. I mean, Diane, she's a very, very young teen mother, and her husband at this time, he's in prison for sexually abusing children, and so you would you would think that this would be better for them. And if you thought so, you would be absolutely incorrect. Her grandparents adopted her and Keith in March of that same year. And this is when she officially and legally became Eileen Warnos. And Eileen, she also went by Lee. Both of her grandparents were alcoholics. Her grandfather physically abused her and he also sexually abused her. He would also give Lee these beatings, and during these beatings, he would make her strip down naked. Lee, of course, she eventually, she started acting out, and it kind of started, you know, her stealing from her family. It led to her starting fires. She would have these angry outbursts, and honestly, Lee became known as a violent child. Lee, she had trouble making friends, and most of the kids her age, they pretty much cut her off and they avoided her unless they were torturing her. I mean, really, just to be mean little assholes. While being sexually abused by her grandfather, there is also speculation that she had a sexual relationship with her brother Keith. It's believed that she started sexually experimenting with Keith around the age of 10, and by 11 years old, Lee was performing sexual acts in exchange for money, alcohol, and cigarettes. And as Lee, you know, she had, was constantly tortured and cut off for most of her friends before she even made it to high school. As a teenager, Lee became heavily involved in alcohol and drugs. And in 1970, Lee became pregnant at the age of 13. Lee had been raped by a man that was friends with her grandfather. He was never identified publicly that I could find, um, but he was never punished for this either. Um, 
During her pregnancy, her grandparents forced her to stay at a home for unwed mothers, and Lee gave birth to a son in March of 1971. She was never allowed to hold him. He was taken away from her immediately after birth, and she was forced to give him up for adoption. Now, obviously, this was a situation that was absolutely the best for this little baby to be put up for adoption, to go to a home with a family that loved him and would care for him and give him a good life. But Lee was never given an option. Lee dropped out of high school not long after giving birth. And soon her grandmother died of liver failure from, you know, from her heavy and excessive drinking. And after her grandmother died, her grandfather kicked both her and Keith out of the house. So Lee, at the age of 15, she had to do what she had to do to survive. And so she made a life of hitchhiking and prostitution. On May 27, 1974, in Jefferson, Colorado, Lee was arrested for a DUI, disorderly conduct, as well as firing a weapon out of a moving vehicle. She was given a court date, and when she did not show up for that court date, a warrant was issued for her arrest for her original charges and then the additional charges of failing to appear. Lee, she continued her life of hitchhiking, and eventually she made her way to Florida. When she arrived in Florida, she was 20 years old, and she met a man named Lewis Fell, and Lewis was 69 years old. Lewis was a yacht club president, and not too long after they met, Lewis and Lee were married. However, they were not married for long. They were married on May 4th, 1976, and the marriage ended on July 21st of the same year. You see, Lee, she just really didn't get, like, she just didn't get along well with others for the most part, and she liked to get in fights. Um, And so she tended to get into quite a few altercations, and one of these happened at a local bar, which ended with her arrest. Not long after that, Lewis, he kind of made the allegations that, hey, Lee is beating the shit out of me with my own cane. He was basically, a, a he claimed that she had become abusive, and he also claimed that Lee had been stealing his money. So nine weeks after they were married, Lewis filed for and was granted an annulment of the marriage. Lee, however, she claimed that Lewis was abusive to her as well. Lee's brother, he died from cancer, and she received a $10,000 life insurance policy for him. She continued with her life of crime with, you know, offenses like robbery, battery, assault, fraud, and resisting arrest. She lived off of the insurance policy, but her primary source of income continued to be prostitution. Lee had many, many psychological and mental health issues. From the ages of 14 to 22, she had attempted to kill herself six times. Once, she even shot herself in the abdomen, and no one ever really attempted to get her any kind of real help or the much-needed therapy that she required. Like, she was given medical attention for the actual wound, but... It's it's like the mental health side of this was completely and totally ignored. In 1986, Lee met Tyria Moore in a bar called Zodiac. 
Shortly after meeting, the two were in a very, very intense relationship. Um, they would end up being together for over four years. And honestly, this would be the closest thing to a real relationship and a true connection with another human being that Lee would ever have. Lee was in love with Tyria to the point of desperation, and she would have done anything to keep Tyria in her life. Lee had spent her entire life craving love and attention, and this was something that Tyria very easily provided for her. Tyria cleaned rooms for a living and Lee was still a prostitute and it was difficult for them to pay bills and to build a livelihood and during this time I mean I can only imagine that that Lee's anger over her her past sexual abuse physical abuse abandonment and her psychological issues they just continued to build and build and build So, on December 13th, 1989, two men were out looking for scrap metal on a dirt road in Volusia County near I-95, and they found a man's body wrapped in carpet, and of course, they contacted the police. Decomp was pretty advanced, and the body that they found, they had to identify him by fingerprints. The body found was Richard Mallory, and he had been shot several times with a 22 caliber gun. Richard was 51 years old, and he owned an electronics repair business in Clearwater, Florida. When he was found, Richard had not been seen for 13 days. Richard was said to be an alcoholic, a sex addict, a sex offender, and was paranoid. Employees said it was common for him not to come to work for days at a time. So when he had not been into work during this entire 13-day period, Nobody really thought much of it, and he was never reported as missing. Richard's death was investigated for months, and at one point, there was a woman named Chastity that was arrested for his murder after her boyfriend had come in and told police that she had confessed to the murder to him. She was released shortly after that, though, when it was determined that her confession to the boyfriend was false and out of anger. And so I can only imagine that this was probably her way of threatening her boyfriend. Like, hey, I have killed a man and I will do the same to you. On June 1st, 1990, the naked body of an unknown man was found. He was found in the woods of Citrus County, Florida, about 40 miles from Tampa. He ended up being identified as David Spears. David was 43 years old and worked in construction. He had told friends that he was going to Orlando, and he was last seen on May 18th. It is almost certain that David never made it to Orlando. David had been shot several times with a 22 caliber gun. His truck was found on I-95, the doors were unlocked, and his plates were missing. During the investigation of the crime scene, police also found a used condom near David's body. On June 6, 1990, yet another nude male body was found on I-95, and this time it was in Pasco County. The body, it was in such an advanced state of decomposition, they could not identify him by fingerprints. It took time for an ID to be made, but he was eventually identified as Charles Carscotton. 
He was 40 years old, and he too had been shot with a 22 caliber gun, and it was believed that he had died sometime in May or June of 1990. These deaths had happened in different counties, but Pasco County had heard about the recent death in Citrus County. They were concerned with the similarities, and Pasco alerted Citrus of their murder and that there seemed to be pretty similar circumstances. On July 4, 1990, in Orange Springs, Florida, two women crashed a car into a brushy area off the side of the road, just kind of into the woods. It happened near the home of a woman named Rhonda Bailey, who saw all of this happen as she was sitting out on her front porch at the time. Rhonda said the women got out of the car and they were arguing. They had beer cans and they were throwing the cans out into the woods. Both women, however, told her that they were fine. One said that her dad lived just up the road a short distance, and they actually got back into the car and drove off. Rhonda, she did call the police, though, and she reported the accident because, obviously, something was off. Marion County Sheriff's deputies responded to the call, and they actually saw two women walking as they were on their way to the scene, and they stopped and asked these women if they had been involved in the accident. They told them no, and then not so politely told the police to leave them alone, and they continued walking. The deputies, however, they later found the car, and the windows had been busted out, there was blood in the car, and again, the plates on this car were missing. The 1988 Pontiac Sunbird came back as belonging to Peter Sims. Peter was 65 years old and lived in Jupiter, Florida. He had gone missing on June 7th after he had left Florida to go to Arkansas to visit family. Peter had been reported missing and a description and a sketch of these two women, eventually they were sent out nationwide. Peter's body was never found, but it is believed that he died in June 1990. On July 30, 1990, Troy Burris went missing while out on a delivery for his job. He didn't come back to work that afternoon, and his, his manager later discovered that he never actually made it to the last few deliveries of the day. So Troy's wife reported him missing, and then his boss and her husband, they spent the night driving around looking for him. Marion County deputies found his truck around 4 a.m. the next day on State Road 19. The truck was not locked. There were no keys. And then five days later, Troy's body was found in the Ocala National Forest by a family out for the day having a picnic about eight miles from where his truck was found. I mean, could you imagine going out for the day to the national park with your family, you know, your kiddos in tow, you're going to have a nice little picnic, and then you find a body that has been there for five days. He too had been shot with a 22 caliber gun, and he had been shot twice. Decomp at this point, it was so advanced, he could not be identified when he, when he was found. However, his wife identified him by the wedding ring that he was wearing. Immediately, police thought that they had a good lead in Troy's case. There had been a hitchhiker that had been hitchhiking that day, the, Troy, the day that Troy went missing, and he had been active between the area where the truck was found and where Troy's body was found. 
However, it was quickly ruled out and he was cleared, and they were back to square one with no suspects. On September 11, 1990, Charles Humphreys disappeared. He was 56 years old, and he never made it home from his last day at work. He worked as a child abuse investigator in one county office, and he had gotten a transfer to another county office, and it was a transfer that he was apparently looking forward to. He was found the next day, and he had been shot seven times with a twenty-two caliber gun. His car was found later in September in Swanee County. Walter Antonio was found on November 19, 1960. Walter was 66 years old. He was a truck driver and also a part-time reserve officer and security officer. Walter was found on a logging road in Dixie County less than 24 hours after he was killed. He had been shot four times, once again, with a twenty-two caliber gun. His truck was found like five days later in, a, in, in yet a different county, and it was found in Brevard County. The commander of the Marion County Sheriff CID, Captain Steve Bingar, um, he started putting these murders across all these different counties together, and he knew that there must have been a link. He believed that there were women that were luring these men in and killing them. And his two top suspects were the two women that had crushed Peter Sims' car. So in November, they really started pushing these murders publicly. And, you know, remember, all of these murders had happened over several different counties. They also started pushing the theory that two women were their top suspects. And they really started putting out these sketches of the two women that were seen crashing the car that belonged to Peter Sims. And, you know, as they started this massive media push, tips began to pour in. And several of those tips revolved around the same two women. And that is where we're going to leave off for today. We will have part two out at the end of the week. I hope that you have a great week and I will see you next time. Bye.